Welcome to the All Angles podcast. In this episode, we are delighted to welcome back for a second time, Barnaby Wiener. Barnaby is the Chief Sustainability Officer at MFS, as well as a portfolio manager on various strategies over your tenured history at MFS, which we covered on the very first episode of the All Angles podcast. So Barnaby, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Vicious. Lovely to be back. So almost two years ago that we started this podcast and you were the first person on, we're going to refer to some of the things that we talked about then. But I wanted to first ask the question, um, given so much it feels like has changed and the dynamic and the landscape has sort of shifted under our feet as we've been navigating through the wonderful world of sustainability. I'm just curious, how do you see it today? How do you think the landscape has changed? What are some of the things that you think are challenging or opportunities for investors embracing this new mindset? I think sometimes when thinking about how the landscape has, has changed, it's easy to get confused because really it's a, it was always a very complicated landscape. <laughs> it's become even more complicated. But I suppose if I sort of pull out a few key strands, I mean, obviously one very obvious way the landscape has changed in whatever it is just over two years since we last spoke is just the extent to which in the U.S., um, it's become so politicized. And that has, in many ways, been an unwelcome challenge because it's, sort of, I think, forced many stakeholders in the investment community to sort of, to some extent, rethink or maybe just think a bit more carefully or differently about how they a- approach this. Uh, so it certainly made it an added an, another layer of complexity. At the same time, I, I think one shouldn't look at it through an entirely negative lens. I think there are many aspects of of the politicization, which frankly are slightly ridiculous. But I think at its core, there is a, a, a legitimate um, question, which is, you know, what is the role of investors? What is the role and responsibility of companies? And, and how should they be evaluated? And I think if we're honest, you know, there were almost certainly things that were done in the name of sustainability or, you know, that, that, probably didn't really make much sense. So to the extent that it's forced the investment community to rethink and think about its broader responsibilities, then it's possibly a positive thing. And I think the other thing that is easy to forget if you're sort of caught up in the maelstrom is that at sort of ground level, there's still a lot of, of positive movement. I mean, if I think about, for example, just taking one issue how companies are addressing their climate-related risks and thinking about alignment with net zero. I mean, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any companies rolling back on that commitment. And you know, there are many more that have science-based targets now than did two-plus years ago. Um, and if I think about our conversations with companies on how they're going about addressing it, you know, we've learned more you know it feels like there's been progress i mean we can debate whether the progress is fast enough to tackle the underlying problem but there definitely is progress so i feel that you know as is always the case you can sort of take a glass half empty or a glass half full view of it and actually i almost think we have a sort of an obligation to take a glass half full, you know, with, as, lo- as long as it doesn't lead to complacency, I think one should sort of not get defeated by the uh, the obstacles that get presented from yeah. time to time. I couldn't agree more. I think the, the onus is on us in the terms of the practitioners in the space 
you talked about embracing complexity last time, which I definitely want to come back to, but also embrace the challenge and with some optimism and some hope for how we move through it. And we've talked about this a lot, you and I, over the last few years of hope being part of the strategy of how we sort of tackle some some of the big problems that we uh, find ourselves faced with. As you said, the picture got has been complicated. And one of the there's so many different sort of arenas now that we're debating. What is the agency? What are the limits and the duties of the agency that investors have? One of the questions that has been surfacing a few times is how should, if at all, should investors think about impact? And that can be a kind of loaded term, as you said, in different jurisdictions. On our last conversation, we ended up talking a lot about effective altruism and altruistic kind of thinking and and how that intersects with the investment mindset. So I wanted to ask, given that this is a topic that keeps coming up, in your view, how should investors think about impact? Should they? And if so, how? You're right. All these terms are so loaded. Um, It feels like that's a real sort of um, theme of today, how language has become so much more weaponized, frankly, mm. than it ever seemed to be, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But I guess, how should investors think about impact? Well, it depends on which investors you're talking about for a start. So let's say you're a charitable foundation or endowment, whatever, um, with an explicit um, social or environmental purpose, then I think it's entirely legitimate to think very carefully about impact as you make investment decisions. If as a mainstream asset manager like MFS, where um, we don't have that explicit mandate, which, frankly, the majority of professional investors are in that category, then clearly we can't make investment decisions based on impact. You know, our our primary responsibility is to make investment decisions based on what's in the best long-term financial interests of our clients. So there's a limit to how impact should weigh on investors' decision-making process depending on the mandate. All investors should consider impact for, I think, for a few reasons. One is that ultimately, let's let's firstly unpick what we mean by impact. I mean, I think what we mean by impact is it's a sort of loose term to describe what impact companies have on the planet and the community and the, all the other Real stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. So how do they, how, what, what's the footprint that company leaves on the world um, that is unlikely to be sort of directly covered in its uh, financial reporting. And I think it's a very important question, most importantly, because ultimately a company's impact may well lead to financial consequences. And I feel quite high conviction that the risk of that is much higher now than it used to be. Mm. So 20 years ago, no one was really paying much attention to how companies treated their workforce or their suppliers or what the environmental impact was. Now, obviously, it is much, much more in focus. And that reflects broader societal concerns about the state of the world, whether it's of environmental issues or social injustice, and uh, concern also that the corporate world has you know, an important part to play in, in, in protecting that. So it's going to affect the numbers. Mm. And therefore, as an investor, particularly an investor with an appropriately long time frame, you have to think about it. You have, um, ultimately, every company requires a license to operate. And we've seen it time and again that you know, companies drift onto the wrong side of that line hmm. and they get punished. I mean, right now, for example, I mean, it's topical in the UK, but I'm just thinking of the 
the post office scandal where the I guess we probably have some uh, some some of our audience won't be so familiar with with uh, will not be UK based but essentially over a period of lasting over 20 years close to a thousand innocent sub postmasters were wrongly convicted of theft and fraud because of a dodgy accounting software um, that was uh, supplied to the post office by Fujitsu. Now, I'm pretty sure Fujitsu is going to end up having occurring a cost for that. Mm. And of course, whether one would have been able to identify 20 years ago that there was a sort of uh, a, 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 an issue there or, or, or not, if you were analyzing Fujitsu, almost certainly not. But I think that the sort of reflects society's intolerance for corporate behavior that is deemed um, rightly um, you know, to have fallen fallen yeah, foul. So, yeah. so, that, so, that, so I think that's the main aspect. But I think there is another aspect to why we should think about impact, and that's just thinking about the broader ecosystem that we 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 operate in, because you can have a situation hypothetically where you make an investment and that investment pays handsome dividends, so you you generate a very attractive return from that investment. But um, it has consequences for the broader ecosystem that are in the long run going to be detrimental to all investor returns. So I think we shouldn't be afraid as investors of recognizing that we have a sort of broader obligation to sustain a healthy ecosystem. And I think that's where sometimes people struggle a bit because that can feel a bit sort of nebulous. Yeah, or maybe even out of scope to your point. On, yeah. Like what is the mandate? Then that, that's often what gets used is sort of fiduciary duty but so okay so makes total sense to you me us that it's in scope because it affects the numbers and because part of the role of the investment market and finance more broadly is to facilitate good asset allocation that is deemed to be fit for long term as well as help our clients and the savers of the world sort of retire with dignity or save for their future. And yet, to your point, people are afraid of it or it's a controversial topic for some reason and it's become loaded. What do you think are some of the traps that people fall into as to why they think, why has this become such a controversial topic for investors, do you think? It's a sort of profound question, really. I almost feel like everything seems to have become more controversial. <laughs> you know, I feel like we live in a more polarized and sort of more da well, more dangerous world in lots of ways, but dangerous in terms of, in a, in a narrow sense of what you can and can't say without risk of, you know, being sort of attacked from one side or the other. So um, I, I think, and I say that, I think that covers a whole gamut of issues, but particularly here, it feels like on both sides, you have unhelpful extremist dogmatic thinking mm. on the one side a, a group saying we have a fiduciary obligation to uh, maximize ret financial returns for our you know for investors and anything to do with sustainability is basically woke left-wing <laughs> dogma that's sort of a, a conspiracy against the end investor but then on the other extreme you have people saying no one should invest in an oil company hmm. or any anything to do with fossil fuels, which I, I, I think is well, mistaken on so many levels, not least of which is we're still reliant on fossil fuels for about 80% of our total energy. So whilst we're still using their products, we maybe ought to perhaps 
you know, think twice before consigning them to the uh, investment jail. To some extent, I think it reflects the fact that it's much easier to have a to take a position. Mm. I think we are instinctively tribal. Mm. It requires much less effort to say, okay, I'm with this tribe and I think this and I'm going to hug everyone who thinks the same way as me and shout at everyone who thinks differently. And I'm, you know, every data point I get, I'm going to interpret so it fits my position. And then I don't have to sort of really engage my brain because I'm sort of in my, I'm in my slot. And it's actually incredibly difficult to listen to an alternative point of view and, and really engage with it. One reason I think it's become harder is because I think attention spans just get shorter and shorter. And I, I, I do think that um, technology and social media has a huge part to play in that because we're increasingly a species that operates in sort of, you know, tweets and posts and really struggle to sort of engage thoughtfully on a topic for any, you know, Definitely. length of time. I think for both sides, it's become easier to get into and stay in your echo chamber mm. and more painful to get out. There was um, a story that was covered in the BBC recently about a, a person in the US and she grew up in, I think it was the Midwest. She'd grown up in a community that was extremely sort of, and everyone from her church community and every radio show she listened to was about how climate change was a giant hoax. She actually was a, a trained chemist. Mm. Uh, and just happened to stumble across some literature that sort of made her think differently. And what was really fascinating to me about reading the article, and it was sort of titled "How I, you know, how I changed my mind and realised that climate change wasn't a hoax," but the immense personal cost that she had to go through in terms of losing her friends and losing her social circle, and took unbelievable courage and bravery to change her mind. I'm not saying that necessarily, again, without making a political statement of whether that's right or wrong, but just recognising that. We can sometimes take for granted how easy it might be for people to sort of change their perspective, whether they are on an echo chamber, either to the extreme left or the extreme right. But it can be hard for them because they're giving up some of those ties. One thing that we've talked about a little bit over the, the last few months is um, Charlie Munger and mental models and biases. And we could think about the post office scandal as a sunk cost kind of fallacy and a bias to that, which we talked mm. about the other day. As an investor, are there any biases that you think we should be mindful of as we step into this or any lessons that you've learned over the last few years that help you sort of rethink and and make sure that you are open to contrarian views or to kind of contrary indicators and making sure that you are paying attention to facts not necessarily in the echo chamber what you just articulated there the need to listen to and really engage with alternate viewpoints is absolutely something we should all strive to do and it's incredibly difficult so I find it much easier to identify what how I should behave than how I actually do I've probably spent most of my the last two three years in in an echo chamber of one sort or another because actually it's very uncomfortable when you're with someone you sort of fundamentally disagree with. I can think of plenty of investment biases that I've had and colleagues collectively as, as, a, uh, as a group or parts of the group have. And I think one of the problems with investing, particularly on this, is that it's important, as we agreed, to sort of continue to challenge yourself um, and say, am I thinking about this the right way? But as a long-term investor, it's also important that you make decisions and stick with them. Hmm. And so I think in, in investing, it's doubly hard to re retain objectivity because there's a part of you that's saying, I'm a long-term investor, so I've you know, spent some time thinking about this and I've reached this conclusion and therefore, you know, 
I should stick with with my guns and not sort of blow with the wind. There's also another part of you that inevitably is going to be influenced by how the share price is evolving. And um, depending on your instincts, if you're innately contrarian, you want to buy more of something just because it's going down. And if you're innately sort of trend following, you tend to um, get nervous when it's going down. Both are sort of equally irrelevant. <laughs> it's incredibly difficult to, uh, um, and all, all one can do is keep sort of trying to, to, to force oneself to see things from a fresh perspective. And Definitely. I think one of the things that we've talked about and you've impressed upon me and the organisation is that there's ample room for debate and disagreement, but no room for detachment, which I, I really love as a sort of part of the North Star of how we think. You know, we're not no one here claims that they have the perfect answer on how any one company, industry, sector or the broad industry at large should be approaching any of the topics that you've just you know you've talked you've talked about whether it's governance failures or systemic failures or human rights issues labor issues or climate change but that collectively we as long as no one detaches from that and apathy is the sort of killer then um then we're good one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation and and we ended the last conversation on was when i asked for what's the advice that you would have for the uh, listener was embrace complexity so i'm really curious if what are other examples you just talked about you know how difficult it can be to sort of step out of echo chambers but other examples where you've embraced complexity over the last couple of years has that changed your views on anything or has it strengthened and made more resilient your views or any of your principles one of the beauties of the embrace complexity philosophy is it's another way of saying admit you don't know <laughs> and so in a way it's sort of if your starting point is to recognize that an issue is complex and that and that there are um probably no clear answers only trade-offs then it's actually less likely you're going to find yourself in a position where you actually take a position and then realize you your position is is wrong and, and while it is important to embrace complexity i'm struck by the fact that at some point you do actually have to sort of make a decision obviously mm. when, when investing but also as i think about how we act as an owner and how we engage with our investees i think we've done actually a pretty good job of of embracing the complexity there because most of our engagements have been really to a large extent explorationly you know explore exploratory engagements in other words we're we're have interacting with companies to better understand the topics in question and um and i think that's appropriate absolutely appropriate we don't want to go in pretending we know the answer we don't at some point and it is a process but at some point i think we do need to time to time say well actually we know enough here to at least take a position you know and we might find you know, we'd be humble enough to say we may change our mind at some point if the if if the evidence changes but i i think that's that's possibly um the next challenge for us as an organization is to convert that exploratory engagement into perhaps sort of something more tangible but we can't do that just for the sake of it mm. it's got to be a sort of clear and generally held conviction that we need to be asking the company to do something and, and we, we 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 do it i mean i can think of things like on diversity i mean we've been quite explicit with companies about our expectations on percentage of the board that would be from diverse backgrounds and that's that's definitely a very positive and actually generally welcomed uh, position 
as in welcomed by the companies. So I'd love to see, you know, see that sort of develop more uh, as, as we start to sort of de- at least develop some conviction that yeah. as we wade through this sort of complex landscape, we can say we feel s- strongly enough about uh, hmm. this particular topic. That Having some conviction to yeah. put a stake in the ground on, on yeah. some area. One of the reasons I brought up the question is, um, in my role, as you know, I'm very privileged to speak to many of our clients mm. around the world as they sort of grapple with how complicated and complex uh, sustainability can be for them as well, um, and their sort of role as fiduciaries for other people's money as well. And the embrace complexity sort of narrative is one, as you said, you know, I think we've done a good job, even with clients, of exploring why and how even on something that on paper seems really simple, like net zero, given the amount of nationally defined contributions from regulators and governments that are all pointing in that one direction, even how complex something like that can be to actually Mm. implement, and how you can very quickly end up implementing something that has all sorts of unintended consequences, like the exclusion of fossil fuels, which may actually exacerbate the problem, not solve it. And one of the things that I've been thinking about but not tried on anyone yet so this is the first time so you can tell me if this is wrong is i actually think it's absolutely right to embrace complexity with the hope of getting to a high conviction position but almost think that people need i'm going to call them simplicity safe havens as a base from which to do the exploratory work Mm. so in the case of climate and we could use border diversity or other examples we know that it's limiting and it's not perfect but it's really helpful that we've got a single currency of CO2E as a, and, and everyone sort of now understands what scope one, scope two, and we could argue about scope three, but everyone understands what those terms mean and they may not be perfect, but that enables people to then step into even more complexity as they start thinking about what does a just transition mean or what does nature mean or what does it mean to measure this at a sovereign level or a sub-sovereign level. So we, I don't think we could have as an industry or as our clients couldn't, or maybe we as investors couldn't embrace that kind of level of complexity if we didn't have this kind of simplicity safe heaven somewhere in the middle. So I think there's an onus on, I think there's an onus on us as well, and maybe specifically my team, to help asset allocators in terms of our clients find where that simplicity might be, at least as a foundation of where we are, broadly speaking, uncontroversial, so that we can kind of continue to move forward. Does that make sense to you, or is that... It it totally does make sense. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I completely agree. Well, well, but this way, I I I agree with you that people are much more comfortable when they can sort of base things around a, an objective, a simple objective hmm. metric. So, you know, when it comes to climate, just you know, CO two emissions. It's you know, it's it's as you say, it's a universal language, and it's and it is helpful. So, I suppose. What what I'm slightly nervous about is that these simple metrics become the basis of one's strategy, and when actually I think the basis of one's strategy and approach should be much more of a sort of uh, intangible, sort of almost commonsensical position of. And I'm hesitant to use this term, but where what's the what's the right thing here? What's the sort of north star? If you're just thinking about creating a sustainable business, I often think if if imagine if we owned companies outright and they were sort of family businesses and we were protecting them for the you know 
the next 10 generations or whatever. And that was our mentality. I think if you approach everything from through that lens, it's actually fairly obvious that you would think about all these social and environmental externalities. And my problem with the, the, the honing in on metrics is some things are measurable and some, some aren't. So let me give you a simple example. Diversity. It's very easy to measure the number of women on a board. It's harder to measure ethnic diversity. It's harder to measure diversity of sexual orientation, of socioeconomic more, background, socio-economic yeah. background of, um, sort of neurodiversity, sort of, you know, it's all, 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 all just different outlooks. Different, you know, so there are so many different aspects to diversity. And, you know, most of them are really hard to measure. And so what happens is we, we tend to sort of hone in on the one that is easily measured. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that because, you know, maybe better to focus on something rather than that. But hmm. a, a board that's more um, gender diverse, is that's a, good, that's a good start. And it's the same, I think, with environmental issues. Many it's times. very easy to focus yeah. on. There's so many environmental problems. I mean, increasingly, I sort of feel like, you know, biodiversity, and we've talked about biodiversity, uh, loss, plastic pollution, yeah. water. It's, it's, oh, there are so many issues which might actually prove to be even more serious than yeah. um, than than climate, but but they're harder to measure. Hmm. That's really helpful. I, I, yeah, I, I I'm nervous about allowing, giving people the the sort of easy option of just saying let's just focus on one thing. There's a um, false comfort. Yeah, in that simplicity sometimes as well. Yeah. You remind me of two things. One is, I think it's Goodhart's law that it's when a metric becomes a measure, it ceases to become a useful yeah. metric, yes. which is your, yeah. I think, your, and then there's often, and I have a slight issue with this, I often trotted out is a sort of truckerism around what gets measured gets managed. Mm. That often get, which actually, having read a lot of his work and I think the, the Trucker Institute has actually published something that says that wasn't actually the intention of it. It was actually a warning, not yes. an ambition. Yes, um, yes. So, <laughs> wonderful example of how how things get misinterpreted. Yeah, yeah. So, a, I think they're doubting that whether he ever really wrote that or said that. I haven't found it in any of his literature. Yeah. But equally, his sentiment was almost the opposite. Be careful what you measure because that's what you end up managing to. When we know that, to your point, often, you know, I think it's the nines often attributed to us are not everything that counts can be counted mm. right and and we have to be really mindful of how we think balance especially in our industry the qualitative and the quantitative or the forward looking totally. and the back and that there are things that we just can't and i i couldn't agree more and i feel like that is in a way one of the great challenges of our our age and it's sort of really you know one thing you asked about how the landscape would change and other one thing that really changed in the last year is just sort of this the extent to which we've become even more obsessed with AI, and obviously, I'm the you know probably the most ignorant person on the planet when it comes to machine learning and whatever large language models. But you know, clearly there has been there have been some interesting developments in terms of what these things can do. It strikes me that we have a sort of dangerous obsession, sort of almost sort of you know wor- worship of technology, which sort of in this sort of post-religious era that we hmm. uh, from. I'd say generally in the West has sort of taken hold. It almost feels like sometimes tech is the new religion. <laughs> I mean, you know, not wishing to labor the point about the uh, Horizon scandal, but, you know, that's a, it's a classic example of where the default assumption was that the machine can't be wrong. Mm. Well, actually it was. <laughs> and as I think about how that plays into sustainability and how the, the obsession with tools and, and measurement 
it's a false comfort. Hmm. I'm standing up for for human beings. You know, I I don't think AI, I think AI's you know these machines are, are you know very clever. The people who've sort of figured out how to get to the point where we can create a machine that it's clever, they're very clever. And <laughs> but the, and it's what the long term consequence of that. I'm not too sure. I can see ways it could be helpful. I can see ways it could be disastrous. But at the end of the day, you can't replicate the human brain. Hmm. There are sort of strands in our in own neural networks that um, yeah, we have to believe, we have to have faith in and, and trust those rather than trusting in... Um, Everything in ones and zeros yeah. and, and the infinite spectrum in between. So in your standing up for humanity, uh, I want to take you back to... Um, optimism and the you know are the onus and the charge that we have to see through some of the challenges so whether it's the increasing complexity the charge nature of some of the language the precision the sort of polarization that we face or even the threat of AI or regime change what is your hope or what is your message of hope or things that you know give you inspiration or hope as you look forward in terms of how the industry can continue to kind of grapple these issues my hope is that as many as possible try to uh, congregate in the middle ground <laughs> for all sorts of reasons as investors we need to engage with and be concerned about the sustainability of our ecosystem both broader ecosystem and the investment ecosystem but at the same time you know recognize that there are no simple quick fixes and shortcuts and i hope that people we move beyond this sort of slightly defensive mindset of trying to appease lots of differing stakeholders and are able to sort of set our collective flags in the ground and say, this is what we believe. This is the sort of the, the, the guiding principle that's sort of going to inform our strategy and this is how we're going to implement it and to almost just ignore a lot of the, the noise on either side. So that would be my primary hope. It seems to me, and you, you would have much more insight into this than I do, but it seems that most of the conversations we have with other stakeholders, particularly with asset owners, are actually very constructive in that regard. I think my sense is that most, my, my sense is always that actually most people in the world are quite sensible. Hmm. Unfortunately, the ones who are less sensible tend to often attract the headlines. <laughs> so when you read the news, you get a sense of a sort of really uh, warped uh, mm. world yeah, that we reality. live in. Yeah. But actually, I think the majority of of, of people um, come at this from a sort of sensible and uh, authentic perspective. I guess what, what I hope in terms of what gives me optimism, I, I think sometimes uh, I, I feel very strongly that a crisis often brings out the best in people. And it feels like there are multiple crises going on at the moment. There's a sort of geopolitical tectonic plate shifting crisis. There's a climate and biodiversity crisis there's a crisis of inequality mm. um, there's a crisis of politics mm. which I think is pretty widely recognized that wherever you are certainly in the US or in Europe that political system is not working it's as fragile, effective, it's fragile. Yeah. and I think and hope that people respond you know, positively to that um, if they don't <laughs> then maybe we're, we're in trouble but that, that would be my my primary hope is that you know we can get away from the fear stroke aggression of the you know of people taking sort of extreme positions one side or the other and and shouting at each other and actually sort of try and find some find some alignment uh, yeah in yeah and plant our flags together.
Well, Barnaby, listen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it and all of your insight. Um, it's been great to have you back again on the podcast. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Thank you.